You're listening to Sound Funding, conversations with Europe's leading experts in impact. Today, I spoke with impact veteran Simon Olvund, one of the masterminds behind the scaling of Impact Hub in the 2010s and a tech for good entrepreneur. Simon is now at the Technical University of Denmark, where he's investing in deep tech for climate. In this episode, he announces the launch of the university's new funding program, Earthbound. I reach Simon in Copenhagen. I'm your host, Ryan Grandlittle. Thanks for joining. Simon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You have a new initiative that you want to talk about today, and we'll get to that. But first of all, why don't you introduce yourself a bit as the social entrepreneur that you are, who's been working in the sector for years. I've known you for many years, wearing different hats. Talk about some of your experience and the organizations you've worked with before. Uh, sure. Uh, I basically always had a thing, I guess, for impact since the beginning of my career. So I've been dabbling in that ever since I started. And I think there may be two experiences that stand out for me. The first being Impact Hub, which I helped build out as a network. This was back in 2010. We were a small group who led the structuring of Impact Hub as a global network. There were like 12, 15 hubs at the time. We built this network structure, governance, raised funds, and designed a model that allowed for co-ownership, which was a very exciting and also tiring process to go through in this massive organizational change, but also absolutely fantastic. And after we got it set up, it went really fast. And so I think after four years, we went from 15 hubs or so to 70, at which which point I was exhausted. <laughs> it wow. was really, it was really, you know, it just went boom. It went from uh, mainly European and a couple in the US and in South America. And it just, you know, on all continents, we had African hubs launching, Asian hubs launching, and it was a very, very exciting journey, but also uh, very taxing. And so I kind of, um, at that point, had been worked on the system, so to speak. You know, I mean, Impact Hub is really building up the social and impact entrepreneurial ecosystem, if anything. It's like infrastructure for this. We, um, or I basically was in a situation where I thought I wanted to get my hands dirty. I wanted to get, you know, instead of being supporting, uh, building entrepreneurial accelerate your programs, access to capital programs and networks and all of that. I thought it'd be exciting to actually be the one who was driving a startup from scratch. I should say I'm also a, a total Impact Hub stan. And um, you know, I, I, I worked I worked and led the efforts on impact finance at the BMW Foundation, like the car company in 2014 to 2016 in Berlin. And I went with I made an investment into Impact Hub Global and actually put myself as part of the investment and went there for a year yeah. um, at Impact Hub Global to help kind of grow some earned revenue programs and stuff like that, build some accelerators. And I think at that point, and probably it's even bigger now, but there are already a hundred around the world. So it's been a huge success story. I'm still very close with them. I do some accelerator work with them and and I host my quarterly food hack Vienna meetups here at the Impact Hub Vienna. Awesome. So I mean, totally cool and, and so important to people forget how important to the fabric globally Impact Hub has been, you know, some of the big kind of unicorns that we see in climate tech or in, you know, some of the like outsized impact organizations on the social impact side. A lot of them started with, you know, one chair at an Impact Hub. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they've been phenomenal. And I think it's just so interesting to see how much they moved in that whole space and how the model moved. And what I really love about it as well is that what was core to us was it's not a cookie cutter model. 
It's not a franchise. It's not, you know, some kind of standard approach that you can roll out. It's really just, you know, each and every hub is in its market on its own terms and conditions and has to figure out how it best hosts and facilitates this sort of like innovation um, uh, infrastructure in its community. And yeah, they've done that incredibly well. So yeah, really exciting organization to have been part of. But yeah, I think for me, it was, you know, being at that ecosystem level, I just really wanted to get my hands dirty and wanted to try, you know, kind of walk the talk in a way. I mean, we've been preaching to everybody, oh, you have to do it like this, you have to do it like that. I wanted to go through that process myself. And so I co-founded a company, which is now called Meridia, together with a partner, uh, Thomas Vassen, who also, incidentally, is Impact Hub alumni. <laughs> he co-founded the Impact Hub in Amsterdam. He was our founding chairman of the Global. And so, you know, you have to keep it in the family. But uh, basically, that was uh, super exciting. We started out in the kind of land rights, land use field data space. We built a business which basically, at the onset, focused on doing land titling, land rights certificates for smallholder farmers in soft commodity value chains. But then we, at the same time, just grew an enormous competence around data, data verification, how to audit data, and also build up rapport with these big global sort of uh, yeah, companies like the um, people in cocoa, people in coffee, people in tea, people in these soft commodity supply chains. And we basically got into a very interesting position as this whole sort of ag sector has moved towards higher degrees of sustainability, traceability, and so on. The regulatory environment is sort of, you know, closing in <laughs> on them. The European Union has just, I think this year, approved a new deforestation directive, which actually requires that if you have, are importing a certain soft commodity into the European Union, you have to prove that it's not caused deforestation. Otherwise, you simply won't be allowed to import it. This is our cocoa. This is our coffee. This is these key commodities that people obviously are very keen on seeing on their shelves and in their kitchens. So basically what Meridia is doing now is both, we're still in the land titling business, but we've also evolved a much more a bigger business, if you will, which is around verifying the sustainability and traceability claims of these large companies. So they actually can continue to bring their soft commodities into the European Union and thereby actually yeah, do so in a sustainable, uh, compliant way. We actually just had a first close on our Series A last week. Well, congratulations. Uh, so In this funding exciting. environment, especially. Uh, <laughs> Great. Yeah. No, but we've got really good investors on board and a, a new set of like a couple of new investors that also came in who are, who are really key. And this has been been really nice. So that's going well. And so that's with Meridia. And you're still a major part of that. But these days you're based in Copenhagen and you're working with the Technical University of Denmark. Yes. Uh, so this is uh, the latest. How, how thing. many hours a day do you work exactly? <laughs> no, I'm I'm actually I'm more supporting Meridia as best I can as an owner and shareholder. But uh, yeah, my focus is really with this new initiative that we're just launching at DTU Denmark Technical University, which is called Earthbound. It's an awesome name. What is it? Yeah, basically, in a way, you could say um, Earthbound is a climate tech catalyst. So. We are born out of a university ecosystem where generally the whole sort of path from lab to market is very difficult. Essentially, what we did was we went in, so this is about a year ago, I went in, I interviewed scientists, I interviewed students, 
interviewed program people, VCs, businesses who work with these universities to try and sort of say, well, why are we not seeing more climate tech, deep tech climate tech cases actually emerge from university ecosystems? The inventions are being made. They're being made in these labs. They've been made there for years, but very, very few of these yeah, pivotal innovations actually make it to the market. And that's not only true for DTU, it's true for pretty much any engineering university. And given the context of climate change, this is something where we obviously need solutions. We need stuff to happen. We obviously need to change our behavior as humankind as we speak, but we also need to build for the future, build inventions that can bring us into a more sustainable future. So we need to keep inventing. And the universities play a fantastically important role in this. And what we have is a... Um, a situation where the accelerators, the incubators, as it were, are just not hugely successful. And so I went and talked to all these stakeholders, said, hey, how would you like to see it? And then we recruited a team and uh, we're now we're basically ready to launch our approach to this in the coming weeks. And what we're essentially doing is we have created, for starters, uh, three fellowships. These three fellowships are one for students, one for scientists, and one for entrepreneurs where basically they have to have exciting deep tech cases that can have massive climate impact for us to consider them. And we'll fund them with a grant of up to 100,000 euros so that we can make them investable. We can help them to raise follow-up funding. We build community among them, ensuring that they're not alone in this fight. And we you know, basically link them up with the broader ecosystem. And I think what's really unique here is that we're embedded into the university. We're embedded into the departments. So we're embedded into the department of physics or energy or construction. And so, so we're actually there in the labs. We're able to access these inventions basically as they materialize and then try and see and chart what might be the best course to market for them through this fellowship. And is that because, so if you're embedded there, that's different than like a tech transfer office or sort of that traditional approach. I'm wondering, so what's the secret sauce here? I, I agree with you. And I've also been talking to some, especially here in Central and Eastern Europe, to some impact investors asking kind of what needs to happen in your ecosystem for things to improve. And tech transfer, better tech transfer from universities was one of the things that that popped up. I think this is something that's been identified, you know, a lot. And there are some places I think of like Stanford and Oxford that stand out as doing pretty well there. But in general, it's quite tricky. And I know that, I mean, even my own bias is generally to look away from universities after some, you know, granted a long time ago, but experiences that, you know, weren't at pace with the startup environment. Let's put it that way. Oh, totally. I think that that's, I even think that nobody at university would necessarily disagree with that. Um, there are plenty of challenges. And yeah, I think one challenge is that we're working with these institutions. I mean, things are really institutionalized. And so transfer offices are also institutionalized. And what they have to cover, they have to cover generally commercialization agreements, as well as patent filings, as well as some kind of degree of, of spin-out support. And there's only so much they can do and are experienced in, et cetera. Plus, they usually have a centralized function. They're not actually in the departments, et cetera. DTU has done something quite interesting there, creating what they call innovation partners who actually are assigned to the different departments and go out there and scout and really support this the evolution of these cases. 
And so who are these people? Are they part of the university or are they? They are part of the university, but they typically have a commercial background, okay. uh, have a technology background within. Uh, so they sort of understand the areas they're focused on. And so this has been really interesting to see. It's fairly recent. It's a couple of years old. And so what we're doing with Earthbound is essentially piggybacking off that. And so on top of that, trying to see how do we identify impactful cases which have massive climate impact potential, but also have a, a significant market viability. Because if we don't have that, then it's kind of pointless <laughs> throwing money at, right? So we actually go in there, we measure the impact from the beginning as an impact potential, and we track that throughout the time they're with us. We then basically have set up a team of kind of venture builders. These are people who have 15 to 20 years of commercial experience. They help advance these cases, kind of nurture them into a position where it makes sense to then bring in an entrepreneurial fellow. So this means that what we can do is we can kind of nurture in a really exciting technology. We do this in the form of a fellowship for the scientists. And when that technology seems to be ready to kind of spin out, uh, we bring on a seasoned entrepreneur who is looking for deep tech, which is high quality, well-backed, well-researched, has a significant enough development level. And then, you know, they have that experience. They can come in, they can actually build the company. And what has struck me as really interesting is that most university ecosystems, so if we return to what could be the cause of the issue, they, particularly in Europe, they'll go out and they'll tell a scientist who has an invention, they'll tell the scientist Oh, that's a great invention you've got there. You should start calling some customers and, you know, putting them in sort of this sort of startup CEO image, which, you know, it would scare any scientist or uh, most scientists, it will really scare a lot because they're like, you know, I like the comfort of my lab. I, I, this is what I do. Uh, this is what I built my career around. This is what I know. But instead, we're asking them to be something completely different. And if you just think about that, it's like mind boggling. Why would you ask? a person who is the best in the world or one of the best in the world at doing exactly what they do to become something that they could only be mediocre at at best. It's completely silly. So this sort of like, there's this perception that, you know, everybody should become a startup CEO. And I think that's, that's just a complete waste. Let scientists be great scientists. And then let's bring in great entrepreneurs to be the great CEOs of these startups and spin-outs. And so that's essentially what we're trying to do is to sort of match this fantastic technology with a fantastic commercial experience and then give it a push so it gets into the market. Yeah, I, I had uh, Johnny Everett from Marble Studios, the, the Parisian deep tech yes. venture starter on the podcast. And basically they look at it as well as their, one of their major roles is to match the science person with the business person. And it makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, they're pretty distinct skill sets. You mentioned the EU, and, and I just want to read a quote here from Forbes. The EU accounts for a quarter of the top 20 research universities, but has a much smaller share of founders compared to the US. Traditionally, European universities have been reluctant to commercialize innovations, and some have even been called out for holding back entrepreneurs. And so I wonder in your kind of discovery phase on this, are there some models that are working in the US that we can import into Europe and try out here? Are you borrowing from the US at all? Well, what I tell people when I call good colleagues and, uh, and new friends in the US within these ecosystem is that I'm there to steal from them, but they're welcome <laughs> to steal back. <laughs> I'm going to share everything I've got. So, so I'm totally stealing and borrowing and reshaping. And I think, you know, we're all trying to lift the same 
big tasks together and the more we share the better so certainly there are those that really are inspiring i think i mean obviously the ecosystem around the engine at mit super interesting berkeley also very exciting everything they've done with their collider efforts so we definitely look at those systems and there are plenty more also in europe i mean there's plenty of stuff to learn um tum uh on um super super exciting in, in munich yeah exactly we got our friends up in Gothenburg at Chalmers also doing exciting stuff. Uh, so there's lots of stuff to be inspired by. I think to get back to the sort of like EU or Europe versus US dichotomy, I think one of the challenges is just culture. And we have that not just within universities, but generally, right? And it's just not a thing for most scientists to consider actually having a job on the side. It's just, it's not how things are built up. The whole university infrastructure does not support it. So there's a lot of stuff that's where you could say the system is basically against them. So essentially what a scientist has to do is they have to publish, they have to teach, and they have to raise money, right? Those are the three things a scientist will do. And so there's very little time in that to do something else. And if you don't publish, you won't, particularly if you're more of a junior scientist, like a postdoc or an associate professor, et cetera, you'll want to keep publishing because if your score is not high enough, you won't get into a higher position. So if you're really serious about your career in academia, you just have to continue publishing or you'll lose out. And the universities don't support that. They don't create alternative ranking systems or or benchmarking systems, which where you would say, okay, well, if you founded three companies, that counts just as much as you're publishing. Or, I mean, there are a few universities that are experimenting with this, but on a whole, they don't. And I think we just have to realize and acknowledge that the incentive structure is really against scientists becoming entrepreneurial. So it's not that they're lazy at all. They work very hard. Many of them want this to happen. But at the end of the day, the system is not really, um, yeah, fine-tuned to support them. So you're based now in, in Copenhagen. I feel like there's a lot that's happening in Scandinavia, in the Nordics, in climate tech in general. There are some investors there. There's some cool startups coming out of the region. Are there? Do you want to just comment on kind of some of the trends or what's happening there? Is there are there any kind of centers of excellence or themes that Scandinavia is being known for? Definitely. I think I can speak most to Denmark at the moment, but um, I mean, Denmark has been home to, I think, the two largest wind turbine manufacturers, Vestas and Siemens. So, and I mean, and both those companies have been here for, I think, 30 odd years or longer, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, so that industry is really ingrained. There are big partnerships also, particularly with DTU, DTU Wind, which is the department that focuses on that, has, you know, obviously big contributions to that sector, DTU Energy as well. We have another, uh, you know, big energy infrastructure company, which is called Orsted, I guess in English, <laughs> or Ørsted in Danish. They build massive uh, offshore shore wind uh, wind um, infrastructure across the world. So this is kind of historically what has been very much present in Denmark in the market. And we're also seeing a new quantum center of excellence that just got opened, uh, I think, um, a month or two ago based in Copenhagen, which obviously is also expected to have a lot of impact, though, you know, as it always is with quantum, nobody really knows. So that's to be to be seen, <laughs> but super exciting. And yeah, I think there are also a lot of political ambitions around the sort of whole green economy, as it were. So it's a very exciting environment to be part of, particularly also if we look in more to the, the investment space, we see lots of new 
impact, but uh, climate-focused VCs that are turning up or funds which are being remodeled to have a focus on climate, which is quite interesting. But yet, you know, if we go back to that Europe-US challenge, then I think the issue there is that we just have completely different expectations to what, for example, a fund horizon should be for deep tech. And that's just, it still boggles my mind that, you know, pretty much every deep tech climate tech fund in Scandinavia that I know of at least is like a 10 plus two. Whereas if you go to uh, many of the deep tech funds in that sort of like MIT ecosystem, um, they're like 20 years. It's a huge difference. I mean, we're talking about technologies which have like, yeah, 10, 15 years to market at, at times. So how would you expect to see a return within within 10 years? So so I think we just need to also look at a complete different approach to how we line up capital. And obviously, the I mean, EU is, pretty, is a pretty good place for self-funding as well, Denmark especially. But when you think about deep tech, which most climate tech is, then yeah, there's still a gap. There's still a big gap. Uh, and that's also where we're trying to step in with Earthbound is to say, well, we can maybe help facilitate a, we can put this very, very early money, which is a grant. And secondly, we can try and facilitate access to funding to make sure we get you through because most projects still just die because of a lack of capital. And let's wrap up with the Earthbound Fellowship for Entrepreneurs. Maybe you can talk a bit about what you're looking for, criteria, who should apply, what's in it for them and where they can find out more about it. Sure. Yeah, so the place they can find more about it will be earthbound.one, which is our website. And they can simply just sign up there and let us know they're interested. We have five cases already on the website that we've sort of pre-selected as we launch. And what we'll do is basically try and do that match. So if you have sector experience, knowledge that pertains to that case, then you could be the right candidate. And like you mentioned before, the matching is really critical. And so what happens is when you... When you sign up with us, uh, we'll reach out, we'll talk to you. And if it, we think it's a good fit with the technology and the market opportunity, we'll basically try and do this matching with the scientist to make sure that we have a real good fit there and that could work out. The process is basically uh, that we foresee that we have a three-month test period where we sort of really see, does this entrepreneur fit with this particular scientist team, with this particular case? Is this a good setup? And we cover all the costs. So it's a grant of around 26,000 euros to basically facilitate that. By the end of that period, we expect there's a clear plan for how we're going to spin this out to market. Some very clearly, clearly defined OKRs so that we can charge ahead. And then we can release another grant of 74,000 euros, which can be used for that part of the journey. So all in all, it can take up to a year, maybe. Obviously, different companies have different trajectories. So it's entirely flexible. The funding is thought of as entirely flexible. You may use it for whatever you need, as long as it's within, you know, what, what the scope of what the business wants. So we think it's a really nice opportunity for people who, yeah, have their 15 to 20 years of experience, want to get a proven uh, deep tech invention, which has enormous impact potential, and then just get paired with yeah, some really exciting scientists who are fascinating to work with. Amazing. And if people want to reach you personally, Best spot online? Uh, probably just LinkedIn. That would be the easiest. Yeah. That always is. So I'll put the links to that, to Earthbound, to Impact Hub, and to Meridia in the show notes. Simon, thanks so much for being here. Sure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. You can follow me, Ryan Grant Little, on LinkedIn to make sure you never miss an episode. 
You can find out more about the EVPA at www.evpa.ngo, where you can also find our sister podcast, Impact People, hosted by EVPA's chief storyteller, Ben DeVries.